Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a great show ahead, including a look back. We're not exactly at the one-year mark. Sadly, we're a little bit over that of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Coming up, we will hear from earlier in the week our friend of the program, our military analyst, Mike Lyons, as he kind of assesses the past year. Did he think it was going to go this long? And what he sees for the future and possibly an end date. Coming up in our next segment, a great piece looking back one year later from our partners at CBS News, a recent piece on CBS's 60 Minutes. And then the second half of the program, some of you know here in Denver, Many of our friends and colleagues went down to the border and El Paso within the last couple of weeks. And boy, I tell you, talking with the DEA, FBI, Border Patrol, so many of them are former military with our country. And they continue that war on the battle on the border with three, two, one. They continue the battle on the border with the cartels and so many illegals coming through. We'll talk about that, specifically focusing on the arrest, the apprehension, finally, of Joaquin Guzman, a.k.a. El Chapo, who is in Colorado at Supermax in Florence, Colorado, our most secure federal penitentiary. We could not do programs like this without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day, fighting on behalf of Camp Lejeune veterans. Get in touch with John and his team Again, online, bosonlaw.com or 303-999-9999. Let's get underway this edition of the American Veteran Show. As mentioned, our military analyst from last week, looking back at the one year that Russia has invaded Ukraine and the war going on there, here's our military analyst, former United States Army Major, Mike Lyons. Hey, Steph, thanks so much. Thanks for having me back. Mike, what have we learned in the last year? 
we've learned a lot about the Russian military and the fact that they can't perform in a manner that, uh, you know, couldn't take Ukraine. And I think there's a lot of questions remaining as to maybe they couldn't even defend Russia at this point. I think that uh, we're all surprised by their um, lack of combined arms, the fact that they couldn't get their act together, still have not controlled the airspace. And um, the fact that Ukraine has fought with a lot of resilience. Um, so I think that's the biggest surprise here. However, it's still not over because Russia still has tremendous capability. And now in wars of attrition, what happens is the side that attacks the other side's capability of waging war ends up winning. And Russia has a lot more capacity to still do that over Ukraine. Ukraine really can't attack into Russia, can't attack those drone platforms that, that are attacking them. So I think the, um, you know, one year in, um, we're watching again the Russian military be destroyed in place. That's a good thing, I think, for the United States, uh, maybe not for the global world as, as it is right now, as China now is going to start exerting, I think, more influence. So, you know, a lot remains to be seen. I think since in the year we've seen two additions to NATO, we've seen billions and billions and billions of dollars from the United States go toward this effort. Has that made a difference? Is that one of the reasons why we have still seen a year later this this continue? Yeah, I think it has, especially in the beginning when they were stockpiled with anti-tank weapons and the like, but the Russians didn't fight um, in, a, in a manner that uh, gave them any level of survivability in a lot of different things. Um, the, the aid that we're giving now has all come down to artillery. It's come down to artillery weapons and, and ammunition that's giving them a chance because Russia is, this is what they are good at. They are good at artillery wars. They've been good at it since, you know, the turn of the last century. Um, but it, it's, it's made a difference. I'm sure there's been waste. There's, I'm sure there's, it's not all gone to what it needs to go. But, but, but the, the people that I've talked to are telling me that as long as they continue to get supplied with, with ammunition, um, they're going to be able to at least hold off and defend. Whether they're going to be consistent and, and that'll lead to a peace settlement still remains to be seen. This is all up to Russia. Mike Lyons is our guest, our military analyst, long time with the United States Army, retired major. He's done work with NATO. Um, hopefully by now you know his resume, and he's one of the best that we can call on anywhere in the country. You can see him on CNN and, and certainly was with CBS News for, for so long. You know what's not lost on me, Mike, is... Gosh, in the early weeks that we had you on almost seemingly every other day is we would talk about the mass exodus of refugees and the by the yeah. millions and millions of of mostly women and, and younger children. You know, it's not like, you know, over the last year they've been able to go back home and resume life as normal. I don't forget that angle either. I know you don't. No, and, and Poland and even those European countries have done a superb job absorbing them. And likely in all cases, they'll have to start new lives there in those other countries. And that always creates a problem, and as, as we've seen before, with, uh, with refugees in those European countries. Um, but um, we haven't seen complaining. We haven't really seen the challenge. The, the, we haven't seen you, you know humanitarian crisis. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with those countries that are on that close to Russian borders just recognize the threat. They they are deadly serious about about fighting this close to um, close to where Russia is. I know we've talked about before. I was never a big fan of putting a lot of those countries into NATO. We can't have everybody in NATO be everybody but Russia. Right. Uh, but now I could see I could see a, a a scenario where I think one of the things that they'll get out of this is membership in the EU. I think that'll be part of any peace settlement that they'll sign. Let me ask you, you know, it was not uh, just a couple of months. I, I don't have the exact dates, but I know you were on with us multiple times. Remember when it was like there was a Russian convoy 
and it was it was just mm-hmm. on the ground for like seemingly it's, I know it was day after day, but it seemingly was week after week. And then the argument kind of started to come up. Look, with air power, they could take that out and, and one less convoy of Russians coming into Ukraine would make it easier for the Ukrainians perhaps to come on top. So then now we're back to hearing that argument almost daily about, you know, what about more air power F-16s? How come that hasn't happened? And what's your assessment of that? Yeah, the air power w- would not tip the balance in their favor. A couple things. First of all, you couldn't train pilots fast enough, and they couldn't, you know, kind of get there fast enough. And F- F-16s are a complex weapon system, and no matter how much English the Ukrainian pilots speak, it it just doesn't matter. The experience that 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 you would that would have they would need to fight because of the other issue is how the F-16s are deployed with American doctrine and tactics. Part of the reason why Russia has not been successful in the air is because they don't use their air power the same way that we use ours. And the same with the Ukraine military. Their, their air force are, you know, just a bunch of pilots up there, you know, fighting with this, this airframe is not going to necessarily mean victory. They, they don't fight in a combined arms manner. There's not integrated communications. There's lots of other things. And, and I've read reports from Air Force pilots that said you'd have to first, they'd have to unlearn a lot of different things and then relearn about how we fight with that aircraft in particular. So it just wouldn't work. And, and that's why, uh, for all practical purposes, it's not, it's not a, a situation where, in, even in the short term, to try to even to say that it's, it's a good idea. Mike Lyons, our military analyst, uh, is our guest. Do, do you have any indication, even anecdotally, the losses that we are talking about here? And I, I, I will, will probably first say, I think you would be the first to say, the losses for the Russians way more than than it could have ever anticipated no oh my gosh yeah i i mean I, it's likely close to 80 to 100,000 total casualties perhaps 60% of them are kias um 300 tanks alone that's a division's worth of tanks uh that i've seen uh maybe 6 or 700 armored personnel carriers other things artillery tubes um and i think that's why i know the people in the pentagon are whispering to the administration let's keep this up and let's keep the proxy war going because the ukraine military is destroying the russian army in place now they're doing it inside of 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 ukraine and it's causing ukraine to get wrecked in the same sentence but the bottom line is they are uh, they're putting an absolute destruction on on what's what's russian military capability and it's just something that we just uh, didn't expect to do we didn't expect to see Once again, we cannot thank our military analyst, former U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons, enough for his insight, his candor, as we look back one year plus later since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Coming up next, we'll continue the theme, a CBS 60 Minutes piece on the one-year mark. That comes up next. We're off and running. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stefan Tubbs. We continue focusing on the one year now plus mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's amazing. Uh, in ways, it seems like it's been forever. Well, more than a year. And in other ways, it seems like it was just, say, last week that we heard about the Russians invading. Regardless of where you fall on the issue, it is amazing to think that more than 10 million refugees are still out of their home country. They're in surrounding countries like Poland. It's truly amazing to think not only of the death and destruction, but of the displacement as well. This from last week, 
CBS's 60 Minutes. In the year since Russia invaded its neighbour Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's army has succeeded in capturing just one regional capital, the city of Kherson. It was a key objective in the Kremlin's attempt to seize Ukraine's Black Sea coast. The eight-month occupation of Kherson ended in November, when Ukraine's army forced the Russians to retreat back across the Dnipro River. But the city's residents are now under fire almost every day from enemy artillery positioned less than a mile away. We visited Kherson this month, and from what we witnessed, Russia's goal appears to be the destruction of what it cannot control. Helena Luhova used to be a school teacher and a city council member. Ukraine's president put Luhova in charge of rebuilding Kherson. My working place. Effectively, it's mayor. We watched as she managed aid distribution, power outages, and an avalanche of problems caused by Russian shelling. Kherson has been shelled more than 2,000 times in the last three months. Because they occupied the city, they know where the schools are. They know where the humanitarian aid points are. Yes, they know. Would you prefer it if all civilians left the city? It will be better for them, I think. You know, our people go to bed every day and they don't know exactly if we'll be awake in the morning. It's really terrible. Before the war, 300,000 people lived in Kherson. Now about 60,000 remain. More than 80 people have been killed by the shelling. This fire station and 19 medical facilities have been hit. Nothing, it seems, is sacred. Katia Fativa has refused to leave Kherson, despite offers of a place to stay from friends outside Ukraine. Her son Max, who's nine years old, started piano lessons last summer. Fativa told us it's been a good distraction because it's unsafe to go outside and play. We still believe that everything will be good sooner and uh, our victory will come and our life will return to our ordinary Why are you so certain that things will go back to normal? We are on our land and we believe we are Ukrainians and we want to live in Ukraine and nothing uh, will change this, you see? Nothing. You heard that, right? Yes. It's, It's as if nothing happened. You don't shake, you don't even turn your head. No. You got used to it. Yes, we have got used to this, all this. Because every bomb, every attack will uh, take us to our victory. Kherson's defiance was obvious as the Kremlin's troops rolled into town last March. Thousands demonstrated. Within days, Russian soldiers opened fire and began arresting protesters. Residents were ordered to use Russian currency, and schools were told to adopt a Russian curriculum. Fativa would have none of it. We continued uh, studying in our Ukrainian school by Zoom, online, with our teachers, with our programs. That was illegal. Yes, of course, it was illegal from their side, but they tried to uh, take our children there. 
The Russians wanted to control what your children were thinking, what they learned. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. They really want to control our people's mind, what to do, what not to do, and so on. We realized where Fativa's courage came from when we met her father. Vladimir Sagayak manages a foster home just outside the city. After hearing reports that Ukrainian children were being deported to Russia... Sagayak decided to hide 46 kids in his care. He placed some of the children with their distant relatives. The rest were sent off with foster home staff. Fake documents helped them get past Russian checkpoints. What are these stories you came up with to explain new children appearing in families? We had a young kindergarten teacher who took in five kids from 5 to 16 years of age. And we worked out a story for her, that her sister was in her last month of pregnancy and she was looking after her sister's kids. With the help of Photoshop, we created a doctor's note. That's how they got through. More than 6,000 Ukrainian children have been taken into Russian custody since the war began according to research by Yale University. This is security camera video from the day last June when Russian soldiers came to Vladimir Sagayak's foster home. He told them he'd sent the children back to their families. If the Russians had found out exactly what you did, that you hid 46 children, what do you think they might have done to you? I think I would not be talking to you today. It's too risky for Mayor Helena Lohova and her team to work in the town hall. Secretary here. So the administration of a city the size of St. Louis has been crammed into this basement. There are a lot of problems we have and you see the people who solve them. And I'm just noticing it's nearly all women. There are a lot of women here also, yes, that's right. They've had to improvise. To keep the buses running, parts have been salvaged from those hit by shells. And the heat at this hospital is off most days, so that wisps of steam don't catch the attention of Russian artillery spotters. I've heard that you like to describe Kherson as invincible. Neslamne. Neslamne. Why did you choose that word? We are unbreakable. All the people of Ukraine are unbreakable. But Luhova believes Russian collaborators still lurk in the city. They phone them to the left bank of the river and say, there I am, where our team is, what we are doing. They say everything. Feeding information to the Russians. Yes. And telling them what to hit. Yes, yes, it's true. And what should happen to those collaborators now? We have uh, to kill them. I think that uh, they have no right to live. No right to live. No right to live. It was the bluntness of a person who's been targeted by Russian artillery seven times. Helena Lohova told us she tries not to sleep in the same place two nights in a row and travels in an armoured van. It's dangerous, but I have to do my work. I have to help people. I have to be with them with humanitarian aids. It's my duty. So I do it.
This city will remain under fire so long as the Russians are on the opposite side of the river. Only if Ukraine's military can push them back will Katya Fativa's son enjoy a walk outside with his grandfather. Do you think Kherson will ever go back to what it was like before? I'm sure it will become much, much better because people have changed. Our minds have changed. Maybe sometimes we didn't understand really that we are Ukrainians. And now with the help of this war, we understand who we are, what we want. And um, the most important, we understand what we don't want. That from CBS's 60 Minutes. When we return, the rest of the program dedicated to looking at our trip here at home base, 710K in U.S., going down to the border in El Paso for a week and specifically focusing on the military, the veterans involved, the siege of so many illegal narcotics and drugs and weapons, and the capture of Joaquin Guzman, a.k.a. El Chapo. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. We continue the American Veteran Show. You know, within the last couple of weeks, so many of us at our home base, if you will, 710 KNUS in Denver, we spent much of the week, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, in El Paso, Texas, and talking with our Border Patrol and our DEA and ICE agents, all talking about... Obviously, a porous open border, and yeah, there are political ramifications. And certainly, you know, at some point uh, over the years, we have seen U.S. military intervention, the things we do know, and the things that, of course, and most of it, we don't know. But uh, over the last couple of weeks, really a, an alarming story, friends, that has come out that possibly are some members of the United States military connected with some of the Mexican drug cartels. It, it pains me to bring this portion of the story to you. But this from Newsmax just a couple of weeks ago. We've seen reports that drug cartels are successfully recruiting members of our military as contract killers. And guess what? It goes deeper. How do we know? Former deputy administrator for the DEA, Jack Riley. He's the man who led the team that captured El Chapo. Good to see you again, sir. It's great to be with you, Chris. Thank you. So how does this work? Do they intentionally put their guys into the service? And if so, why? Uh, There's no doubt in my mind they do. I mean, if you look at the active military numbers, over a million people, why wouldn't the cartels who are in virtually every corner of our country want to access that not only as a market, but to try to recruit people to help them who have weapons training, military training, which is really crucial for the cartels to maintain control? Do you believe that the drug cartels qualify as terrorist organizations? And if so, why is that relevant in terms of fighting them? I, I, I believe they do. And I think it's important for us, and I certainly hope Congress looks at this issue 
parts of the designating a terrorist organization uh, really is accompanied with resources, technology, information sharing, and also uh, the military's ability for surveillance. This is an ongoing issue that's a threat to national security, and it's about time people stand up and realize this isn't going away until we come together on all levels, military, uh, state, local, and federal law enforcement, and we take a stand, because right now, Unfortunately, I, you can see from the deaths of fentanyl, both in the military and the general population, uh, we're leaking oil. Love hearing from our friend of the program, former DEA Administrator Jack Riley there just a couple of weeks ago. You know, when it comes to Colorado and it comes to the Supermax facility in Florence, you know, we've got some horrible people there. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, a co-conspirator in the Oklahoma City bombing Terry Nichols, Zacharias Musawi, uh, one of the uh, masterminds or at least part of the 9-11 attack. And also Joaquin Guzman is here in Colorado at Supermax. Joaquin Guzman, El Chapo. This from ABC News a couple of years ago. When the plane carrying El Chapo touched down in New York two years ago, the world's most wanted narco looked confused, overwhelmed even, asking the DEA agent, where am I? Nueva York, they told him. His face says it all. The most powerful drug lord ever to live reduced to tears in the hands of U.S. federal agents. Now, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman Loera facing life behind bars after a months-long trial found him guilty on 10 charges related to his deadly criminal drug enterprise, the Sinaloa cartel. This conviction, we expect, will bring a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. It is a sentence from which there is no escape and no return. He managed to elude capture for years, even escaping prison twice. Guzman made billions pouring poison over our southern border. Drugs smuggled in bananas, mistresses smuggled in tunnels, diamond-encrusted handguns, and the Sinaloa cartel's corruption, which some say penetrated the Mexican government, with one witness testifying a $100 million bribe was made to former Mexican president Enrique Peña Nieto. He denies the accusation. The near-mythic tale of El Chapo brought crashing down by an army of law enforcement agencies, chief among them, the DEA. Ray Donovan has been hunting El Chapo for the better part of two decades. He really controlled his entire empire, and he did it on purpose. Chapo didn't trust anyone. And what kind of message does it send to other drug traffickers? It, it says very clearly that if we can get our hands on El Chapo, I would say we can get our hands on anyone. Jack Riley spent an entire career at the DEA tracking down El Chapo. He planned his business model on cops not talking to cops. And what his downfall was, we got better and better at it. Final raid leading to his capture and extradition, a gun battle. El Chapo nearly slipping away through the sewer before being apprehended by Mexican authorities. How did the extradition play out? We were concerned, uh, hey, if he already escaped from this prison, there's an opportunity for him to do it again. Giving credit to the Mexican government, they realized they had to get him out of Mexico. Just how he managed to evade capture while amassing a $14 billion fortune running the world's largest drug smuggling ring laid bare over his lengthy trial. 
a trial marked by unprecedented security for jurors, many of whom were scared for their lives. I think prior to the trial, El Chapo was a household name that was synonymous with wealth and power. And the trial put a spotlight to the real Chapo, who is a ruthless killer, manipulator, a violent drug trafficker, money launderer, liar, and adulterer. El Chapo was one of the chief architects behind the opioid crisis. He was the one who decided to um, add fentanyl to heroin to make the heroin stronger. He didn't care about the consequences. He didn't care about lives being lost. An expert manipulator who had infiltrated the police. He believed very strongly in a business model, and that business model included corrupting virtually every corner of the Mexican government. If you wanted to work for Sinaloa, you'd have to say where you lived, who your parents are, where your children are, in the event that law enforcement would capture you, so that you wouldn't cooperate. Another subordinate telling the court about a smuggling operation that brought $500 million of cocaine into L.A. inside cans of jalapenos every year. Then there was the weeping mistress who testified that she and El Chapo fled naked from Mexican Marines through a tunnel hidden beneath a bathtub. A story she detailed in front of Guzman's glamorous young wife, who dutifully sat in court every day of the trial. His sprawling multinational drug empire extended across the globe and into every major American city. From New York to Chicago. The Chicago Crime Commission designated him as public enemy number one. Chapo was a genius. He had people working for them that didn't know they were working for him. 100,000 street gang members in Chicago who made their living putting his dope on the street. His nickname was Rapido, meaning fast. He was able to turn around drugs in the streets throughout the U.S. We got access to some of El Chapo's infamous tunnels back in 2016. Suffice it to say that whoever built this tunnel, probably not their first try. There's some expertise and experience here. From above ground, just an average looking home. Wow. At one point, authorities believe there were close to 200 functioning tunnels along the U.S.-Mexico border. One thing seems clear. A wall is no match for the Sinaloa cartel. It's still the number one cartel in the U.S. with the most uh, drug markets. Chapo's sons are very much taken over Chapo's side of the Sinaloa cartel, you know, following their father's footsteps, if you will. Until the end, El Chapo maintained his innocence, his defense team only putting up one witness to the prosecution's 56. The defense claiming he was the victim of an elaborate conspiracy. Now 61, the notorious drug lord has run out of escapes. He exchanged a thumbs up with his wife before being escorted out of the courtroom. I think about justice for all those families and for all those people that suffered. There were literally hundreds of people being killed, innocent citizens that were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Those images are seared in my memory because I saw them all the time. Chapo was responsible for that. That from ABC News several years ago. Again, El Chapo at Supermax here in Florence. And we've talked about it certainly on the regular program that at least three Mexican drug cartels most certainly operate 
in the city and county of Denver and the greater Denver area. When we come back, we will actually end on a positive. Right now, they're up in space at the International Space Station. Yet another successful SpaceX launch, a Falcon 9 rocket taking three astronauts into space. We'll have that as we wrap up. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. We wrap up this segment of the American Veteran Show as we always do. Hey, we make no bones about it. We love space, whether it's the public-private partnership, whether it's former military now acting as astronauts. We so love space on the program, and it was a picture-perfect, and might I add, a beautiful nighttime launch just a few days ago. Another SpaceX launch to the International Space Station. T-minus 10. Go for launch. And we are igniting the engines. And we're clear of the tower. One Bravo. That one Bravo indicator are different abort modes that are called that allow the ground teams and the crew to track about the position of the Falcon 9 and the Dragon as they make their way up the eastern seaboard. In the event of an abort, these different abort Effect modes will indicate about the position where Dragon Effect would land, as well as uh, indicate what series of maneuvers Dragon would indicate. But so far, we're hearing good calls on the performance of the Falcon 9 on its ride uphill. One minute, 53 seconds into flight. We're about 30 seconds away from main engine cutoff, which will be followed quickly by stage separation and second engine start, which is the ignition of that MVAC engine on the second stage. Now about 10 seconds away from main engine cutoff. And there we have a, a, a spectacular nighttime launch. Leroy, it's amazing how 
How many times do you see it? It still kind of you know, takes your breath away when, when these uh, launches take place at night. Oh, yes. Uh, very spectacular night launches. Uh, very different from a day launch. You can see the vehicle for a lot longer because of uh, uh, you can see the engines burning. So a uh, very different experience. And here we've seen the first stage is separated successfully. Second stage is ignited. And so everything is looking great so far. And just just talk about the the, uh, the, the vehicle that's getting them to the ISS. We're looking at the um, Falcon 9 rocket, which is topped uh, with an autonomously operated crew Dragon capsule. That's called Endeavour. So while there are actual astronauts on board, you know, this capsule, the Endeavour, they're actually not doing a whole lot right now? Uh, that's right, especially during the launch phase. They're in automatic mode, and so they're monitoring all the systems, and uh, there's actually, you know, very little control the crew has right now. If they had to abort, if something went wrong and they had to separate and come back, uh, they could initiate that manually, or it could also be initiated automatically in case of a, a sensor that uh, detects the anomaly. But uh, right now, they're just monitoring all the systems and making sure everything is fine. And so far, it looks like everything is right on the money. And these guys will be at the International Space Station when um, the Boeing... Um crew flight test arrives. Um, that's going to be in April. This is the first, what, uh, the, the last step on the way for Boeing to get their uh, Starliner certified for space travel? Uh, that's right. So this uh, upcoming scheduled mission for the Starliner will be the first one that, to carry astronauts. So this is a, a big one for Boeing. And uh, so Starliner, if everything goes well, will dock to the station in April, and that'll be another big milestone. Yeah. In the meantime, while they're waiting for the Starliner to turn up, these guys are going to carry out, what, 200 different um, experiments whilst up there? I mean, we hear about these experiments all the time, but are they, you know, are they worth, are they any value or are they kind of busy work? Oh, no, no. These are definitely uh, of, of high value. Uh, we concentrate mostly on life science experiments because it turns out that being in the space environment for a long period of time is actually pretty challenging for uh, the human body, pretty challenging for health. And so we do these different biomedical experiments to help to validate and develop these what we call biomedical countermeasures, which we have to figure out before we start sending crews to places like Mars. And so they'll be doing mostly biomedical experiments, but you can expect also to see material science experiments and some other fundamental uh, physics experiments. So they'll be doing a whole gamut of different kinds of research uh, in initiatives. Leroy Chow, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate your time, your experience. Good to have you with us for the journey. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Celebrating yet another successful launch and mission to the International Space Station with three astronauts on board. That from CNN. This from our friend of the program, both on the American Veteran Show and our regular program on 710 KNUS, Tom Costello, NBC's space and aviation correspondent. Just after midnight, they lifted off the historic launch pad 39A, which has lifted off Apollo missions and shuttle missions. And now we have Crew 6 headed for the International Space Station on board a crew of four, and they include two Americans, as well as an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates and a Russian cosmonaut. Now, that is the second Russian cosmonaut to go up on a U.S. spacecraft in the last six months. By the way, Americans are going up also on Russian spacecraft, and that's despite the fact that America and Russia right now, the relationship is right now at its worst in decades with the war in Ukraine. I've asked all the crew members, both Russians and Americans, how do you deal with that on the station? That's a lot of tension. Do you discuss 
Putin and do you discuss Ukraine or do you just leave it off the table? And all of them said, we don't go there. We've got very important issues. Our lives depend on each other. We simply don't talk politics. And Russia and America continue this relationship in space because they're partners in the International Space Station and they need each other. And so this crew, which will dock to the station tomorrow, is arriving just as they've also had some drama on the station. They've had two Russian spacecraft over the last few months develop leaks, uh, coolant leaks. One of them, a, a, a cargo ship, they had to free up and let go, and it burned up in the atmosphere on reentry. The other one, a Soyuz spacecraft, was supposed to be the lifeboat in case they had to evacuate the station. So they had been without a lifeboat for one American and two Russians. Russia just launched another replacement lifeboat, a Soyuz, last week. But that's been the concern. What has been causing these micro leaks? They think it's a micrometeor strike that have taken out the coolant systems on a Soyuz and a Progress cargo ship. Again, they dock tomorrow, six months on the space station, doing some 200 experiments. So a lot of universities are watching very closely mm. to see their experiments mm. are going to be uh, completed. That from NBC's Tom Costello. I've got to say, yep. I'm jealous. Tom has one of the greatest beats in United States news history. Of course, big time Denver roots at Channel 9 for so long, CNBC, and now at NBC News. And just a terrific human being. Gave the commencement speech last year at his alma mater, CU. Uh, He's a great dude. And what a beat he has. That wraps up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show for our wonderful producer, Michael Arpaio. I'm Stephen Tubbs. Have a great, safe week ahead. We'll be back next week with another edition. Take time out this week and remember our troops. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives for newly appointed agents. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers usbp. That's cbp.gov careers usbp.